Here on the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast, we talk with actors, directors, writers, Shakespeareans, scholars, and today we're talking with David Blixt, who is all of those things, actor, writer, scholar, author. But today we're not going to talk about what I just mentioned. We're going to talk about journalism because it is a great time to be in America to be celebrating journalism. And David, you have just written a book about arguably the very first investigative journalist, Nellie Bly. Indeed. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 626, journalist Nellie Bly. David Blixt is an actor, director, and historical novelist whose new book is called What Girls Are Good For, a novel of Nellie Bly. David's other novels include the Colossus series, set in ancient Rome, and the Star-Crossed series, inspired by the origins of the Capulet-Montague feud in Romeo and Juliet. But his current book is sort of an origin story of the superheroine and journalist Nellie Bly. David sat down with me last week to talk about the origin story of his recent novel. I came to it in a, in a really wonderfully weird way. About two years ago, uh, right before the election, before anything we knew about uh, any of the need for our deep journalism these days, right. uh, I was reading an article in The Atlantic about how 100 years ago there were more women in action roles in film, in silent film, than there are today. There were more action heroines 100 years ago than there are today. And it was a fascinating article. And I started looking up these movies, and half of these characters were based on Nellie Bly. And I thought, I know that name. Why do I know that name? So, of course, I went down the rabbit hole of looking up Nellie Bly. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's the woman who went undercover in the Madhouse. They right. mentioned her in, like, the second season of The West Wing. I, re I remember that, right. And she went around the world in 72 days. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. So I kind of knew where she was at, but I'd never read her, her stuff. And I, So I started doing the, the deeper research that night. I stayed up all night just going into it. And what grabbed me hardest and what made me put down everything else I was working on and start writing this book was how she became a journalist in the first place. Okay. Uh, what happened was, she's it, she's 20 years old, she's living in Pittsburgh, She's her father's died, her mother remarried, and then got divorced, which didn't happen in 1885. Right. He was an abusive son of a bitch and you know, ended up pulling a gun on her in public, and that was enough to get a divorce. So uh, they moved to Pittsburgh, they're trying to make ends meet, she's not getting a job that works for her, she's too mouthy. Um, and uh, As all the best women are. Indeed, right? <laughs> and uh, one day she's reading a on, on a column in the Pittsburgh Dispatch by a gentleman who wrote under the name The Quiet Observer. Mm -hmm. And his real name was Erasmus Wilson, which is a terrific name. Even better. <laughs> right. The Quiet Observer. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote an article entitled, What Girls Are Good For? Mm -hmm. And he summarized it with, A woman's sphere is encompassed by a single word, home. And she was so enraged that she ended up writing a, uh, a letter to the editor. And it was it was something, apparently, that they couldn't publish. Whatever she wrote them, it was so incendiary, they couldn't publish it. And th instead, they put an ad in the paper that weekend and said, if the woman who wrote under the name Lonely Orphan Girl would come into the dispatch offices, she may get the answer she's seeking. And so she's, Monday morning, she's filled with fear. She goes down to the Pittsburgh dispatch and goes up all the steep stairs and the, to the top floor, and uh, she's hearing the 
the thrum of the, the printing press beneath her, and she goes into the editor's office, and she says, hi, I'm the Lonely Orphan Girl. And they said, you're interesting. <laughs> we like what you had to say. We couldn't print it. Would you write something for us? And she's like, okay. And so she writes something for them. And they said, great. That, that was that Maybe that was a fluke. Uh, could you write something else? If you wanted to write something else, what would you write? I'd write about divorce. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> and so they... Uh, 1885. 1885. January 1885. And so she writes these two pieces, and they, they turn to her and say, wow, we really like you. You have something. You have an original thought. You come at it from a really interesting place. But we already have a woman columnist. We can't, we can't afford another woman columnist. What, would you like to be a reporter? And so she says yes automatically and ends up for the next eight weeks going in undercover at the beginning to uh, find out the working conditions of women who work in factories in Pittsburgh industry. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly it's this huge, you know, and she, she humanizes the women. She does what nobody does. These are not bad girls. These are not fallen women. Yeah. These are just women trying to make ends meet and humanizing them as people who need jobs. Right. And uh, that was astonishing to the people, uh, the readers of the Pittsburgh Dispatch. It was also infuriating to all the uh, the factory owners who suddenly need to pay them better. And, people right. are, and so they start complaining to the newspaper. So suddenly she's sent off to flower shows. And that begins a year of she, her trying to write the stuff she wants to do while the paper's trying to shunt her off to, you know, do the interview the, the opera singer, interview the ballet dancer. Right. Right. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I mean, it's funny just to hear you tell the story. I mean, you give it a kind of an epic grandeur just in the telling of it. She is like a superhero, or but she also feels Shakespearean in a way. Right. She's, she's uh, She is the, the, the pants character. I mean, she's the totally the, the, the woman dressed as a man right. going out and doing, she's the viola. She's, she, right. But uh, I, I like to say that because she was the basis of Lois Lane in all okay. in Superman comics. They based Lois Lane on her. But she's a Lois Lane who never needed a Superman. Yeah, right. And right. so she ends up quitting the paper, and she's worked there for a year. In December, she quits. She's like, I've had it. They're not giving me good stuff. Um, and then she comes back to them two weeks later and says, I'm going to Mexico. You can pay for it, and I'll be your foreign correspondent in Mexico. Okay. And uh, so she goes, and she, uh, she goes down there, supposed to be for six months. Yeah. And she ends up being chased out after four and a half by the Mexican government for exposing corruption. Wow. So, so, it, it, so your book is a biography, right? It's not a, it's not a fictional. It is fiction. Oh, it, it is fiction. Yes, this is historical fiction. Okay. I have fictionalized all of these events. I've taken what we know what she actually wrote, and then the stuff that was written about her, and other stuff from the time period. She was, she was a great. Uh, a reporter, except when it came to herself, uh -huh. she would a little, a little self-aggrandizement here and there. Uh -huh. She lied about her age, even in court under uh, uh, under oath. She lied about her age. <laughs> why did and why did you decide to m make it historical fiction rather than a biography? Well, this uh, Karen uh, uh, Kruger, uh, uh, no Brooke Kruger, that's right. Brooke Kruger wrote the definitive biography. I mean, okay. it's, it is a fantastic biography. Okay, um, and I, I wanted to do the narrative side of it, and I didn't want to just repeat what she had written. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to tell it from her point of view, which she already did, but with all of the added elements of her family and the stuff that she didn't reveal okay. when she was writing her story. Because okay. there's all sorts of influence. She took her mother with her to Mexico, uh -huh. and she never wrote about that, but that was a fraught relationship. Okay. Um, and so 
her mother went with her to Mexico for those four and a half months, and exploring their relationship was a lot of fun. You're all, you, I mean, you come to this honestly. I mean, in your one of your other lives, you are also an historical novelist. Yes, exactly. I started writing uh, historical fiction 18 years ago. Okay. Uh, my first book was published uh, 11 years ago. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. With Master Verona, which is inspired by Romeo and Juliet? Exactly. Uh, I was directing Romeo and Juliet 20 years ago right now. And I had a, uh, just directing the show, I, I was cutting pieces of it and I had an idea for the origin of the feud. And it, it doesn't help. The, the, the Montague and Capulet feud. The Montague Capulet feud. And it didn't help the show at all. The Shakespeare's words do not need extra backstory stuff. Right. But I couldn't let go of it. So I started doing deeper and deeper research. And that's when I found out at the time Romeo and Juliet was supposedly happening, according to all the sources, Giotto uh -huh. uh, 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 was in Verona and Petrarch was in Verona. Um, and the, te the Renaissance technically begins with Petrarch finding Cicero's letters in a monastery in Verona in 1342. Hmm. I'm fascinated by this notion that that you have an idea you have a subject you want to talk about and you figure out how to talk about it in the genre that you are comfortable with like I'm having I have an idea and I, I thought it would be a novel and then I went wait a second I'm not a novelist I'm a playwright so I'm writing a I'm writing a play but you are a novelist so you decided to take this that's how you decided to tell her story absolutely but I actually was exposed to historical fiction for the first time on a car trip with my father when I was 19 and he's like he puts in a tape and I'm like really come on we're not listening to a Roman history he's like no, give me a chance and it was the first man in Rome by Colleen McCullough who wrote the Thornbirds um, I've never read the Thornbirds I should I never have but I adore her Roman books and I'm just over the moon for her research and that would keep me into historical fiction then I was working with um, David Dirsch at the uh, the Michigan Shakespeare Festival uh, back in its second year um, I was doing Romeo and Juliet for him I was playing Mercutio and he was he said it in Napoleonic Italy um, and I was like, why are we doing it? Because I just read the sharp books, and I love these these historical <laughs> fictions, and we have to have set it in this period. And I was like, oh, okay, well, great. And so I read the sharp books, and I was like, oh, these are fantastic. I see why he was so in love. Right. Um, so I became a, a huge fan of historical fiction. What's weird is, being an actor, I didn't think to turn any of this into a play. This is I've, I've written one play uh -huh. um, that's for me, the, the fills in a gap in Julius Caesar. Okay. Because, because I, but that's only because I know the history so well, and there's huge drama that I think is left on the table in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Um, oh, 100%. I mean, that play goes in like three or four different directions, and if it settled on any one of them, it would be a really powerful, shorter play. It, totally. For me, it's, it's the fact that Brutus and Caesar never have a conversation. That's what drives me crazy. The most important relationship yeah. in this play. Yeah. And, you know, I want to know how Brutus gets to it must be by his death. Right. Because Shakespeare assumed that his audience knew all that. We don't today. I mean, people would read the histories like, oh, yeah, there's young Cato making his cameo appearance and before he gets killed. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. But we, who, who is that? Why do we care? Why would they mention Cato's death, but they don't say that he died by trying to commit suicide, then he, uh, by doing a little seppuku, and he, they, uh, they, they found him, sewed up his stomach, and he woke up, having tried to kill himself, was so furious, he tore his stitches open, reached into his stomach, pulled his guts, and threw them across the room. Now, Shakespeare makes that reference without ever explaining it. And it's one of those like, oh, oh yeah, that's, I don't want to die the way Cato died. No, that's not a good way to die. That is pretty badass, though. <laughs> it really is. Cato was a hard man. Oh, man. <laughs> Portia's dad was a hard, hard man. This is Christopher Moore, the author of Fool and the Serpent of Venice, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast.
Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Our 2018-2019 tour of William Shakespeare's Long Lost First Play Abridged, The Ultimate Christmas Show Abridged, and The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged Revised continues this week in Columbia, Missouri, and Stowe, Vermont, then continues on to 16 more cities featuring 11 different actors and three different stage managers. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with David Blixt talking about his latest book, What Girls Are Good For, a novel of Nellie Bly. So your historical novel about Nellie Bly is informed not uh, clearly by your passion for the for the subject matter, but also by your 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 Shakespearean background, but also your knowledge of the classics. Are you a Latin uh, classics nerd, or is just specifically Roman history? Or you come? How do you? What is your background to be doing all of this? Because it's fascinating. Well, for me, the, the joy is in the research. Whenever I'm 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 lost. I mean, I I become an expert on something only when I'm interested by you know something grabs me up. I'm drawn to the gaps in stories, stories we think we know, right. I, uh, the little holes in history. Um, I'm like, how did that happen? How did how did Christianity grow from uh, uh, Peter leaving and Paul leaving and going and doing this to what it became? How do, how, do we, how do we have that transition stuff? Yeah. So all of this fascinates me, and I get caught on one little thing. There's a, the reason that the, the Christianity thing came up, there's a church in Rome uh, about two blocks south of the Colosseum called St. Clement's, and you can go down and down and down. They excavated under Underneath. So you go down, it's a modern day church, 14th century church, 3rd century Mithraeum, 1st century Roman street, yeah. and it's called St. Clemens, and Clemens was the fourth pope. And I was fascinated by that name, and how do, how do you get to the, from Peter to the first, first pope, second pope, third pope, how is that transition happening? Right. So I started doing the research into that period, and of course this is the time when the temple was destroyed, this is the time when uh, the, the Roman Jewish wars, and so it, it, all of it feeds into itself, and it takes me years of research, but it's a load of fun. Yeah. Well, and and obviously Pope Clemens is the the, the real name of uh, Mark Twain. Oh, totally, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not you know I'm not just some chimp you're hanging out with here. Uh, um, um, but but getting back to how you started the, the these this epic superheroine um, Nellie Bly. Why don't why don't we know more about her? Well, that's a great question. They did a great episode of Drunk Histories. Look it up. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, but it's one of those you know she's not. They haven't made the great movie about her yet. Yeah. Uh, they haven't made because they're her, her book, The Ten Nights in the Madhouse, which is my, where my book ends. Okay. I, I take us up through her big first huge story in New York because okay. she tried to break into New York uh, newspapers and nobody was hiring a woman. Right. And then she goes undercover. She gets the uh, the assignment from Pulitzer, um, and she goes undercover and, and she doesn't know how she's going to get out. Yeah. And right. and and she does it and it's horrific. And what the the book that she wrote, which is fantastic, doesn't tell is what happened. 
next because a bunch of other newspapers tried to sabotage her because they were taken in by her story. Right. And so it's a great, you know, the, the New York Sun was trying to utterly destroy her. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, she was absolutely a heroine as to why we don't know her because we only pay attention to certain names. Uh, she's certainly better known than some. I mean, yeah. yeah um, there's there's the woman who, obviously, her name I've forgotten, who also rode uh, like Paul Revere to let people know that the British were coming and she rode twice the distance and, you know, but we don't know her name. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the example. We have what? Three movies about name somebody, but right. we don't have the good movie yet about Nellie Bly. Right, well, we have a lot of Wyatt Earp movies. I mean, we have yes. we have a lot of Wyatt Earp movies, because yeah. we all know the, 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 the Doc Holliday. And That's the, right. These are all, and this is this is only, this is the same time period. This is, yeah. you know, this is around that same era. Yeah. So, why do we know those? Because they're gunfights, and they're, you know, it's that whole, yeah, yeah, Nellie yeah. was never in a gunfight. Although, my one of my favorite stories, this is not in this book, which is going to be in the next book. There uh, will be a next book. There will definitely be a next book. Because, uh -huh. um, i got to do the, the trip around the world, but uh, she actually caught a serial rapist in Central Park by posing as a potential victim, and she captured this guy. And, and it's just like, she, she did it herself. And like, holy, how did they do that? Yeah. Hey Hollywood, um, I got a book for you to start adapting. What do you think? I, I would I would uh, take calls. That would be fine. Um, I know that there there's a TV show being uh, uh, in pre-production somewhere, but I keep hearing noise about it. and Nothing's happening. Yeah. So, for me, if if anybody was to play it, I think Maisie Williams off of Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, I think she'd be awesome at it. Nellie was not a tall woman, uh -huh. so having that little powerhouse of of, of of personality. Dude, I can't wait to read this. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. What Girls Are Good For, a novel of Nellie Bly by David Blixt is available at local bookshops now. Send us your historical fiction via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to Noisy Observer Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Haley Croak. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Christopher Moore. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Tischner, 626 1878ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. And I hope everybody goes out and gets a copy. Uh, well, that would be very lovely. I'd love to have it. And if you do, please set up a review. Good, bad, and different. Um, authors always love reviews. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.